Okay, please uh, turn with me to Micah chapter 3, and we're continuing to look uh, at the prophecy of Micah. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> now, on the, uh, on the top of the old bailey in London, there is a statue. It is a statue in gold of the goddess Justicia. She stands at the top of the old bailey with her arms outstretched, holding in one hand a set of scales and in the other a double-edged sword. The scales are there to uh, symbolize justice, weighing up the deeds of defendants against the law, and the sword is there to symbolize punishment. If the scales prove false, then the sword of judgment must fall. Uh, in some statues of, of uh, Lady Justice, although not on the one uh, on the Old Bailey, but some of them around the world, you have uh, the goddess also blindfolded, which symbolizes that any judgment that she would make would be fair, it would be impartial, no matter who is involved. The same process of weighing up the evidence and passing judgment will follow regardless of who stands in front of her. It's meant to symbolize that what takes place inside the courthouse is justice. Fair, impartial, yet in accordance with the truth and the law of the land. So if you've done anything wrong, and if you've done nothing wrong, rather, you should have nothing to fear. That's the idea anyway. If you have done something wrong, you do have something to fear. Yet often, even in our own country, justice seems to be something which, although we strive for it, is sometimes beyond our reach. It's not hard to point out to certain judgments that have taken place where we can rightly ask the question, where was the justice in that? And when we come to this passage in, in Micah chapter 3, we find that's exactly the kind of question that Micah has on his mind as he looks at his fellow countrymen and in particular the leaders and the rulers of the people in the city of Jerusalem. Now coming into to chapter 3 uh, in the book of Micah, we, we begin a new section in the book. The first section of the book it was chapters 1 and 2. And then beginning in chapter 3, we start this new section which will end uh, in chapter 5. Like the first section where we had a long explanation of judgment in, in chapter 1 and 2, and then a small section of hope and deliverance just at the end of section, uh, chapter 2. So here in this section, we have a short uh, passage on judgment, and then chapters 4 and 5 explode out into a great uh, exposition of hope and, uh, and of deliverance that God will bring. But chapter 3 takes up again Micah's blunt and brutal denunciation of Judah and Jerusalem. And here in this chapter, he is primarily, primarily, primarily interested in the, the failure of the ruling classes to provide justice to those who need it. Look at how many times in these short verses in chapter 3 that the word justice is mentioned. Micah draws our attention uh, in this chapter firstly to the rulers and leaders of the people, verses 1 to 4, and then he turns his attention to the prophets, 
in verses 5 to 8. And finally, he rounds off his devastating critique by looking at the entire ruling class in Jerusalem and their willful rebellion and evil and what it will end up doing to the city, verses 9 to 12. Micah uh, begins with a command to listen to the leaders of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel. Now, where this language used here seems to be pointing to both the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel, if we read through the whole chapter, it's much more likely that what he's addressing here is actually the southern kingdom, Judah itself, and more particularly Jerusalem. It was quite possible that when Micah was actually giving this prophecy, this particular message, the northern kingdom had already been destroyed by the Assyrians. Not to mention the fact that they may well have been pressing ominously on the borders of Judah itself. Whatever the precise situation at the time, Micah is concerned with the the leaders and the rulers. Those who would have been men and probably in charge of, of law courts. Judges and magistrates, I guess, would be our equivalent today. Originally, of course, within the the nation of Israel, Moses had appointed elders of the people. They were there to help him to administer justice, to make judgments when disputes came uh, amongst the people. And over time, these people would have taken on more official roles as the nation matured out of the wilderness into actual nationhood. But their function would have been much the same. They made judgments based on the law that God had given the people when they came out of Egypt to provide a place to settle disputes, to uphold justice for the widow, for the fatherless, so that they weren't exploited or they weren't harmed. But as with the property tycoons in chapter 3, these people have become corrupted. They've become greedy. They are manipulating the system so that rather than providing the vulnerable with justice, it's treading on these people like animals. Should you not know justice? Micah asks them. For if they were doing their job correctly, then they would. And justice here is more than simply knowing what the law says and being able to deal out a judgment based on any section of God's law that Moses had provided the people. To know justice is to make judgments in accordance with the spirit of the law. To know the law's purpose in protecting the vulnerable and the helpless. To know that in the law we find the very character of the just and holy God who is compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. Towards all he has made towards the children of men. But these leaders and rulers seem to have forgotten this. And instead, Micah pronounces them to be lovers of evil, hitters of what is good. It's hard to think of a way that Micah could have been more, more blunt, more brutal with his words here, the words he chooses. For we're all very well aware that we, what we love is, most, is what is most dear to us. What we're drawn to, what we spend our time being involved in. Love motivates us. It gets us up in the morning. And for these leaders in Jerusalem, who were meant to hate injustice and wrong, everything had went upside down. For now the very things that they should have been fighting against, they loved. 
and the very things that they should have been upholding they hated. Justice had been turned on its head. The law had become a weapon in the hands of evil men to manipulate and harm people. Rather than being a means where, regardless of socioeconomic background, regardless of who you were, you could find justice when you had been wronged. Rather than the law being used here to help and enrich the lives of people, they were using it to treat them like animals. These evil men used it to treat people as if they were no better than animals that you slaughter and use for meat for your stew. Verses 2 and 3. Who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones. Who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat for a pan. Like flesh for a pot. They had moved so far from the original intent and design of God's law that rather than giving the people justice... Rather, they were devouring them with injustice and wrong and violence and hatred. It's hard to comprehend how such a, such a circumstance could have come about. How the moral categories so clearly laid out by God and his law of good and evil could have been turned on their head the way they have been. How over decades and centuries these people had grown to love what was wrong and become increasingly wicked and dangerous. To the point now in Micah's day where they were treated they were treating people like animals to be killed, used like used for their food. And yet, verse four, they cry out to the Lord. I think verse four here speaks of the day when, when judgment comes. The day when God will bring these evil men to account. For all their evil, they are still crying out to the Lord. These people aren't atheists. They aren't Baal worshippers. They probably regularly attended the temple. Gave the right sacrifices. Offered the right things. But it was only a mask. A mask they wore on the Sabbath. Once they take their place again on the bar, it's business as usual. Their religious duty done, they can get on with life. You see, they think they're all right. They think that by going through the motions of a religious practice that somehow it'll be all all right. Yet they fail to realize that God can't be manipulated like some idol. He is interested, he is very interested in what they do outside the temple. When they sit and make judgment on the people. So when the day of judgment comes, they will cry out to the Lord. Have we not offered sacrifices in your name? Have we not said prayers in the temple? Have we not given money to your cause? And God will not answer them. He will hide his face from them. They have, as they have not listened to the pleading of the oppressed for justice, so God will turn away from them because of the evil that they have done. Then secondly, Micah brings the word of the Lord to the prophets, his contemporaries. 
These men who were meant to be those who brought the word of the Lord to the people. Who instructed them in the ways of God and what God desired for the nation and for the people to do. But they were no better than the leaders because, verse 5, they they lead my people astray, says God. Rather than being the mouthpiece of God who would speak his word and direct the people in the way they should go and live in accordance with his covenant, so these so-called prophets have their own kind of prosperity gospel going on. If you feed them, they proclaim peace. That's nice things. Blessings. Blessings on you and your family. A prosperous life for you. It'll all be all right. But should you refuse to feed them, then lo betide you. They declare war on you. In other words, what really matters to them is not what the Lord has to say. It's what they can get for themselves. If there was money in their pockets, food in their bellies, then they would treat you well. And they would prophesy good things, nice things. Nice little arrangement. You tell them exactly what... Uh, They tell you exactly what you want to hear and you make sure they're treated well in return. It doesn't really matter what the Lord's saying as long as we like it. But then if anyone would fail to play the game, if anyone would be so naive as to suggest that they really wanted to know what the Lord had to say and that they weren't prepared to stuff money in their pockets and put food on their plates, then they turn on them, treat them like an enemy rather than a fellow Israelite. So from the marketplace, to the courtroom, to the temple, the entire ruling class has corrupted itself. It has turned to evil and injustice, rather than loving justice and what is good. Verse 6, Therefore, night will overcome you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets, And the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there will be no answer from God. If both the prophets and the people are prepared to treat God like a spiritual vending machine, then they're going to find that no matter how much money they put in, they're going to come away with nothing. For God is going to stop speaking. When judgment comes, there will be no answer from the Lord. They can pay the so-called prophets all they like, but they, they can inquire all they want, but the Lord will not answer. Like men running around in the dark, they will not know where they're going because God will be silent. Even if they turn to divination, the practice that was forbidden in Israel, they will still get no answer from God. No matter where they go or no matter how they try to get an answer, they will not find one. No dreams or no visions. It will all be darkness. The light of God's word will be taken away from the prophets. But, graciously, but, verse 8, Micah's ministry will be a true prophetic ministry. In contrast to these charlatans that he just described, Micah's true prophetic ministry will be characterized by power. That is power to stand up against this evil. To move against the tide. A power that comes from the outflowing and anointing of God's Spirit. Micah is a a prophet in the true sense. He's anointed for his task. 
and he's given power with the Holy Spirit, with justice as opposed to the injustice which characterized so much of the religious establishment he has described. And he also has might, that is courage. Micah describes the true ministry of a prophet, someone who stands with God's enabling spirit to speak out against the injustice, to speak out against what is wrong, to speak out against corruption, even when he will be hated and vilified for doing it. And the ministry that Micah is called to, verse 8, to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. It's to bring the true message of God's judgment as well as his blessing for the people of Jerusalem. Micah will not be bought off with promises of money or food. He will not hold back from declaring what is unpopular He will say what needs to be heard. God is not a spiritual vending machine. You cannot choose the blessing you want on demand. He is the holy God who hates injustice, despises sin. So Micah will bring his word of judgment when the mainstream prophets are in the darkness. And what really shows us the true nature, uh, and this really shows us the true nature of what prophetic ministry is, It's the one that doesn't deal in cliches or platitudes but confronts us with the ugly nature of our sinfulness and our evil. It's the type that drives home to us how how sinful we really are, how that sheds, sheds light on our hidden sinfulness in our lives. It's the type of ministry that shows us our need of repentance, turning away from those idols that distract us, that sinful behavior that we're caught up in and towards obedience to God and towards love for our other, our neighbor. It's a type of ministry that points us to the cross where we see holy, the holiness of God in action, yet the compassion and grace of God so freely offered to us. It's a type of ministry that is not popular Because it confronts us with the real picture of our true nature. And it would confront the true nature of the leaders and priests and prophets in Jerusalem. Verses 9 to 12. Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob. You rulers of the house of Israel. Who despise justice, distort all that is right. Who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe. Her her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord amongst us? No disaster will come upon us. Micah was going to be the one who brought them the news they least expected. The news that God wasn't going to stand by and let them continue in their wicked ways. They had despised justice, distorted all that was right, They had used violence to get their own way and profited from it. They had built up the city and all its prosperity and grandeur with wickedness and evil. Judges had taken bribes from the rich and powerful to get their own way. Priests had teach nice, gentle things for a prong when the price is right. Prophets provide spiritual counsel for profit. The whole thing is rotten and evil. 
And yet, verse 11, they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord amongst us? No disaster will come upon us. So blinded were they by their own greed and evil that they failed to see the true nature of what Jerusalem really looked like. To them it was a hive of wealth and prosperity, of power and of influence. They had it all, including the very temple of the Lord, which sat on the mountain. You could see it for miles and miles around. The temple, which no doubt they were reminded often enough that God had promised when it was built by Solomon that he would never leave or forsake. So they thought they were safe. They thought that as long as they play along and offer the sacrifices and say the prayers and do all that nice religious stuff, God wouldn't mind the injustice of what was taking place. He would never allow Jerusalem to be, to be judged by being put under siege and taken away in exile. Is not God amongst us, they said. But Micah bring, Micah's message brings them no comfort. Verse 12. Because of you, he says, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, and Temple Hill, which you boast in, will be a mound overgrown with thickets. God will destroy the city, all its prosperity along with it, because of the injustice that has taken place within its walls. Even the Temple Mount will be destroyed and overgrown with weeds. You see, they thought that God had promised that he would always be with them. And they were right, he had. But they forgot the conditions. God had made the promise to King Solomon all those years before when the temple was completed. But the condition was that they had to walk in his ways and keep his commandments and laws. And then he would never leave them. Check out 1 Kings and chapter 6. They thought they could get away with it. That God would, could be manipulated, used for their own evil ends, to increase their own bank balances and expenses at the price of their fellow Israelites. Turn back to uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Take a read of that. See how Micah described there the fall of Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. Then compare it to what he says about Jerusalem. You get the picture of what God's judgment was going to be like. Now, it's hard to take these principles and apply them directly to us today because the church is not a nation in the same way as Judah was in Micah's day. But all the same, as a, church, as a church, there is a danger. There's a danger for us to still uh, be as these people were, to be so deluded uh, in our thinking that just because we're evangelicals or just because we're charismatics that the Lord is amongst us, that we're okay, that somehow God doesn't mind the evil that we do. Doesn't mind our injustices, doesn't mind our corruption when we're not in church or at religious meetings. We can all fall into that trap of compartmentalizing our lives. 
thinking that as long as I'm in church on Sunday and say my prayers and read my Bible, that somehow God doesn't really mind what I do when I walk out those doors after the evening service on Sunday. That somehow I can get away with cheating other people out of their wages or failing to be straight with the tax man. It's easy to get away, to to fall into that, that kind of thinking. God becomes a nice, comfortable deity that I can control and use as I need. When my conscience needs cleansing, I cry out to him. When things go wrong, I cry out to him and I use him for my own ends. But apart from that, I have no need for him and I can get on with my life, live it as, as if he's, well, really not there. But God is the Lord. He's the Lord of all our lives, every little bit of it. He's in control of it all. And if we fail to submit our lives to him, then we're, we're in danger of being exactly like these Israelites. And sharing their fate. So ask yourself, plainly, who's in control of your life? Are you in control of your life and God fits into your plans? Or is God the Lord and is he in control of your life and you fit into his plans? But finally, this message, although harsh and difficult, ends with some hope. For if you turn over to uh, Jeremiah chapter 26, and it's worth doing this. Jeremiah chapter 26, you'll find it on page 786 and verse 17 and onwards. You see, we find here that, that this message was the very same message that God used to convict King Hezekiah to turn back to the Lord, to repent of the evil that was being carried out and to seek the Lord's favor and forgiveness. And you notice what takes place uh, in verse 19. God relented from the disaster. Micah's message got through and God acted graciously to Jerusalem, at least for a while. And friends, if this prophet, if Micah, the one anointed with the Spirit of the Lord to bring a message of judgment on the sin of God's people, if that message, what he said, resulted in at least, at least a partial repentance here recorded for us in, in Jeremiah, how much more then do we need to listen to Jesus? who was also anointed by the Spirit of the Lord, who was the anointed king, who came not just to declare to us our sinfulness, as Micah did, and our need of repentance, but who ultimately died in our place for the very evil that we had committed. He was the one who died so that we might be forgiven for all the injustices that we have ever committed. And ultimately, he is the one through his death for our sin and resurrection would usher in a new kingdom for his people, which finally and completely at the very end will be a place where sinfulness and evil will be no more, where injustice will be banished 
And no matter who you are, you will experience God's grace and compassion. You see, chapter 3 of Micah encourages us to repent. To turn away from evil. To turn away from all that binds us. That would result in our judgment. Repent. As Jesus said it, repent and believe. But you see, turning back to Micah, and not to go too much into the future. Chapter 4 is coming. Where God, through Micah, shows us that, well, shows us what he will ultimately do through his son. He will take away evil in this world and make a new world for his people. And through Jesus, he will make a place of justice and truth, of love and compassion. A place that we can be part of through repentance and faith in Jesus, God's anointed. Jesus who suffered injustice himself so that we might experience grace and forgiveness and acceptance. You see, Friends, this is a a hard message. It's judgment. It's repentance. It's difficult. But it's also a necessary message. To tell us to wake up. Like these leaders in Jerusalem, like King Hezekiah, wake up. Because God will not stand by and let us continue to sin. Continue to go on in wickedness and hatred. He wants us to turn and find forgiveness in his anointed one, in Jesus. And through him, he has promised us a world far beyond our imagining. Not like this one, where even the old Bailey can't fully give us justice. A world where we will have perfect justice, where we will know his peace. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is a word that chastises us, that wakes us up from our our slumber and declares to us the need of repentance, to turn away from the idols which uh, tempt us, to turn away from the sin which entangles us, and to turn to Jesus, to turn to him who suffered injustice for us, so that we, Lord, would experience your grace, would know your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. Help us, Lord, to be those who do repent, not just sometimes, but always. Give us the grace of repentance. And may it continually be so in our lives, every day, that we may be turning away from what is sinful, what is evil, and always looking to Jesus and what he has done for us. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk.
For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.